This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This here is episode 160, entitled, Conquerors Who Worship, in Revelation 15. Yes, we'll be looking at the ideal readers of the book of Revelation, who are portrayed as conquerors, and they are participating in a worship hymn that is located in the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at this worship hymn in order to see what it has to say about God and what it has to say about the true worshipers. How does the hymn in Revelation 15 point the ideal readers towards obedient and faithful behavior? What can we learn about the true God by singing along in this hymn of worship? And why does the hymn only offer worship to God and not to the Lamb? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the sixth hymn within the book of Revelation. Our text for today is Revelation 15, verses 3 through 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. So we have this hymn of worship, and it's placed, of course, in Revelation 15. And so anytime you're reading anything in Scripture, you need to ask about the context in which the passage you're reading actually is situated. Now, the context is actually really important, especially in light of the cosmic conflict that has ensued within the narrative of the book of Revelation for the last three to four chapters. So I'm going to give a quick overview of the previous chapters to understand where Revelation is sitting within the course of this unfolding narrative. So we have a hymn in chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. We've discussed that two episodes ago, and this hymn, among many things, is depicting the scene of worship where the faithful people of God are actually in the presence of God and the Lamb. They are worshiping God, and the temple in heaven opens. We move on to the next section, which is chapter 12. We actually see a sign in heaven. The temple in heaven opening reveals a sign, and this sign depicts a woman who is being persecuted by a terrible dragon. The woman is a depiction of the faithful people of God, and this woman has a son. That son is none other than Jesus, the Lamb of God. 
and he was persecuted by the dragon. And this dragon, as we learn by the end of chapter 12, is currently waging war against the descendants of this woman, whom the initial readers of Revelation would have identified with quite clearly. As this dragon is cast down to earth, we can see how the narrative unfolds in the next section, which is chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And it shows one of the ways in which the dragon persecutes the woman's children, specifically by empowering a beast from the sea. This particular beast summons all to worship it, but the faithful people of God who refuse to worship this beast are described as those who persevere and those who endure. So we have this ongoing conflict between those who align themselves with God and the Lamb on one hand, and those who align themselves with the dragon and his bestial agents on the other hand, and it involves the subject of worship. As we move on in chapter 13, we have another beast in 13 verses 11 through 18. This other beast is described as the beast from the land. And the second beast actively promotes the wider worship and homage given to the first beast. And it threatens those who refuse to participate in this false form of worship. Now the faithful people of God are again urged to resist participating in this false sense of homage. As we move on to chapter 14, verse 5 verses, envisages the faithful participating in true worship. They are holding harps and they are singing. They are described as conquerors who demonstrate purity, discipleship, truthful behavior, and blamelessness. As we move on in chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, offers what I like to call good news, bad news, and the choice to choose. The good news in this section is that the true God is to be feared and given glory because, specifically, he is the one who creates. He is the one-person creator. The bad news, on the other hand, is that, quote-unquote, Babylon is already condemned as fallen, specifically because Babylon has seduced the nations to participate in the unfaithful worship practices. The ideal readers of Revelation, specifically the original readers, would have been tempted to participate in the worship of the Roman emperors, of Zeus, Apollo, Asclepius, local pagan deities, but Babylon is condemned because it has tricked people into worshiping these false gods. Now the believers are told at the end of that section that they need to choose whom they want to worship. Do they want to worship the true God who is the creator or do they want to worship the beast and everything that is associated with this beast? And there is public shame decreed for those who compromise with the latter object of worship. As we move on to chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, offers again the two choices, either fully committing to God as God's firstfruits, or suffer the wrath of God that is to be just and righteous. 
And then we move on to 15. Chapter 15, the first four verses, puts us again in the presence of God and the Lamb, where we began at the end of chapter 11. And in the presence of God and the Lamb, guess what? The ideal readers of Revelation, the true conquerors, are participating in true worship. Now in doing so, the narrative of Revelation reminds us that while it indeed offers some harsh visions of judgment and the wrath of God, it does not leave the reader in that particular place. The visions always circle around and return us back to the presence of God and the Lamb in order that we might offer praise, glory, and homage. In other words... If you're walking away from reading the book of Revelation scared and frightened, then you're not reading it in the way that it was intended to be read. It was intended to foster faithful behavior and true worship of God and the Lamb. So enough about this particular passage within its context. I want to know a little bit more about those persons who are actually worshiping in this particular hymn. It speaks about persons who are singing, who are actually worshiping by singing this particular hymn. Who are they? Well, the previous verse in chapter 15, verse 2, indicates that John saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who are conquering the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. That is in chapter 15, verse 2. So we have those who are conquering the beast. Now, it is really unfortunate that many translations have translated this present active participle as something that has already taken place in the past tense. That's not the normal way that you translate present participles. These are those who are conquering the beast. They are continually conquering. They are continually overcoming. They are continually demonstrating this faithful behavior. And so the readers of Revelation who put themselves in the shoes of these conquerors would be encouraged to continue their own faithful overcoming and conquering. Now these conquerors are depicted by a sea of glass. In fact, they are standing on the sea of glass. And this seems to recall the imagery of the book of Exodus, specifically the Exodus event where the faithful people of God crossed a sea in order to escape Egypt's ruler, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, for the original readers of Revelation who lived in the seven Asian churches, their quote-unquote Pharaoh would not be someone living in Egypt. It would be someone living in Rome, namely Caesar. Those who are conquering the beast, his image, and his number are therefore actively refusing to participate in imperial worship in idolatry, and in unfaithful social practices. Instead of giving glory to the Roman emperor, these faithful conquerors are holding God's harps. 
In other words, part of the way in which Revelation's readers conquer the beast and his image is to actively worship the true God as a measure of active resistance. The book of Revelation is, therefore, deeply concerned with correct worship practices. Now we can see these faithful conquerors holding harps, which is literally in Greek a kithara. It's not exactly the type of harp that we are familiar with today. It's an ancient type of harp. But within Revelation, the persons who hold harps help us to identify who these conquerors are, if it wasn't already clear that the ideal readers of Revelation are these conquerors. We already have seen it back in chapter 5 and verse 8, where the 24 elders are those who are holding harps, and the 144,000 are holding harps. Those passages are in chapter 5 and verse 8 and chapter 14 verse 2. Since the 24 elders is a heavenly depiction of the faithful people of God, and the 144,000 are further described as the innumerable who have been redeemed with the blood of the Lamb, we can see that all these images are just different ways in which Revelation depicts the ideal readers, those who are the people of God. So we have the people of God standing by the sea, they are singing the song of Moses, and they have been redeemed. We have all of these deliberate images that recall the Exodus event. So participating in the true worship of the true God is a way in which we can participate in our own Exodus experience from this present evil age. Those who survived the Exodus were on their way to the promised land, and those who survived this present Exodus experience are on their way to the kingdom of God, where they will reign and rule upon the earth. So let's look at the content of this particular hymn. That's our second point, the content of the hymn of worship in Revelation 15. We've already noted that it is described as the Song of Moses. Now the Song of Moses is a very ancient song that is depicted in Exodus chapter 15, immediately following the parting of the Sea of Reeds, the redemptive salvation of the people of God, and the defeat of the imperial agents that were present in Egypt. So if we weren't already alerted to the Exodus themes within this particular passage, then chapter 15 and verse 3, by describing the song that is sung as the Song of Moses, should help make this point clear. Now we can see in this passage, chapter 15, verse 3, that the Song of Moses is described in a way that is clarified as the Song of the Lamb. You might get the impression that there are two songs that are here, but the word for and within Greek, the word K, could be translated as even. In other words, the Song of Moses is further defined as the Song of the Lamb rather than it being two particular songs. I'm not going to press this particular point, but the fact remains that 
the redemptive ways in which God has demonstrated his righteous acts in the past by redeeming his people from a pagan society in the book of Exodus has been revealed again in the way that God has redeemed his people through the new Moses, namely Jesus, who is described as the Lamb. This is very likely why the song is called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, because both of these figures were key individuals in ways that God has already demonstrated his faithful, righteous, just acts of redemption. And of course, it is about God and his just, faithful, righteous acts that this particular song is describing. This particular song in the worship of 15 verses 3 through 4 has two strophes. Remember, a strophe is just like a stanza. They are correctly divided with the verses that are attributed to them. The first stanza is in verse 3, and the second is in verse 4. And it's very interesting to note that there is a deliberate structure with parallelism, highly influenced by a particular type of parallelism, Hebrew parallelism, that we are familiar with from the Old Testament, what we call the Hebrew Bible. And so you can see in the first stanza, 15 and verse 3, we have a declaration about God, great and marvelous are your works. And then we have the vocative, O Lord God the Almighty. And then we have the second part of the parallelism where there's some more declaration about God. Righteous and true are your ways. Followed again by the parallel line of the vocative declaration, O King of the Nations. So there's some deliberate organization within this particular song. As we move to the second stanza in verse 4, we see a rhetorical question. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? That's meant to be a rhetorical question. And then it is followed up by three explaining answers, all beginning with the word for. So who will not fear and glorify your name, O Lord? And then it's unpacked the first time. For you alone are holy. The second time, for all the nations will come and worship before you. And the third time, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So there's parallelism, there's reinforcement, there are continual ways in which the true God is described, and the song is highlighting the fact that God alone is the one who is holy, that these Nations will eventually come and worship before him. And God has already demonstrated his righteous acts. In fact, they have been revealed. They have been unveiled for people to see, which is intentional in provoking the correct form of worship. The readers of Revelation who very likely have suffered because they have refused to worship the beast in his image and acquiring the number of the beast, whether through persecution, being ostracized, some people being thrown into prison, or persons within their communities having been martyred. 
They are looking to God for his faithful acts, for his redemptive work, for his justice. And so the song highlights these facts. God is holy. These nations will come and worship God. And God has already demonstrated his righteous acts in the past, namely through the Exodus event with Moses and through the Exodus event with the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's look at what this particular hymn has to do in regard to Christian worship, especially for those listeners right now who are interested in worshiping God correctly within a biblical Unitarian framework. So our third point today is the implications for worship within a monotheistic setting. Within this hymn, only one person is the object of worship. Who is that one person? It is the Lord God the Almighty. Kyrie o Theos o Pantocrator. O Lord, the God, the Almighty. We also note that Moses is described as a servant of God, but in Greek it is a servant of the God, Tutheu, with the definite article. Namely, Moses is a servant of the one God that we all know and recognize. Moses was a servant of Yahweh, so the Lord God, the Almighty, is Yahweh himself. The deeds of God are described as your deeds. The ways of God are described as your ways. We can see within the hymn where it says, You alone are holy. Where the words alone and holy are adjectives and they are singular. And we all know what you alone means. It means one single person. We see that the nations will come and they will worship before you. Again, using an independent singular pronoun. The judgments of God are described as the judgments of you, your judgments. Again, in Greek, using a singular pronoun. There is no confusion in regard to the object of worship here within a Christian setting. Only one person is worshipped, and God here is described in multiple ways for everyone to see that he is a single undivided person. Now, just as the Israelites worshipped Yahweh with the Song of Moses after the parting of the Sea of Reeds, the people of God sing a new song to God, the Almighty. And what we can see from this hymn is that early Christians were comfortable at times singing songs only to God and not to Jesus. In other words, while Jesus is certainly worthy of worship, as Revelation chapter 5 clearly indicates, Jesus does not have to be worshipped at all times within Revelation's hymns. Sometimes, like when we see here in chapter 15, only the Lord God the Almighty is worshipped. And it should go without saying that the Holy Spirit is not worshipped here, nor is the Holy Spirit mentioned. The Holy Spirit is not an object of worship anywhere within the book of Revelation, or within the New Testament for that matter.
So, in conclusion, we have observed that the narrative of the book of Revelation portrays the readers stuck within the cosmic conflict with God and the Lamb on one side and the dragon and his beastly agents on the other. The ideal readers of Revelation must choose how to respond appropriately in the midst of this conflict. And the narrative of Revelation summons these readers to conquer like Christ and participate in worship. We first noted that the worship hymn in chapter 15 commented on the experiences of the readers who are positioned uniquely in the narrative as it has unfolded thus far. Only God and the Lamb are authorized as legitimate objects of worship within the book of Revelation. The various Roman emperors, the Greek gods, and the local pagan deities are not to be worshipped. Refusing to participate in the common worship practices within the Greco-Roman world often led to being ostracized, slandered, having property confiscated, being imprisoned, or even martyred. The faithful people of God are summoned to conquer, namely, by refusing to accommodate, by enduring this mistreatment nonviolently, and by participating in true worship. Second, we observe that the hymn of worship was framed in terms of the Song of Moses, which was sung by the people of God after they were salvifically rescued from Egypt. As these ancient Israelites sang to Yahweh, the true God, the ideal readers of Revelation sing to the Lord God Almighty, who rescued his people through the new Moses figure, the Lamb. Third, we noted that the hymn of worship was only directed towards one single person, towards God. The Lamb is not mentioned in this hymn, and neither was the Holy Spirit. The Lord God is worshipped and honored for his redemptive deeds, his righteous acts, and his rulership over the nations. While the faithful people who suffer in light of their allegiant decision to refuse to participate in false forms of worship, the hymn of Revelation 15 is a reminder that God is righteous. God is in charge, and God has proven his faithfulness in light of the redemptive acts already revealed in the past with both Moses and the Lamb. The worship hymn of Revelation chapter 15 strongly insists that the true God is only one person, which is the primary claim of biblical Unitarians. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please join us next week as we look at the final hymn of our study of worship within the book of Revelation, 
the hymn that is revealed in chapter 19. Please do check out our new YouTube channel. Search on YouTube for the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, and you will find short five to seven minute videos of truths that are easily shareable with your friends and family members if you want to help them to see the value of the Biblical Unitarian position. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please consider supporting us as we promote the truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you feel led to donate, you may check out this episode's description for a link to PayPal. Special thanks to our producer and editor, Dustin Williams, for his fine work. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.